It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. John Swinton as our seminar speaker for today. Uh, Dr. Swinton is Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen, an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland, and one of the world's foremost voices in theological engagement with disability and mental health. Uh, he has a number of books that I would strongly recommend, including uh, Resurrecting the Person, Friendship and the Care of People with Mental Health Problems, Raging with Compassion, Pastoral Responses to the Problem of Evil, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, and most recently, Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of Christians with Mental Health Challenges, which will uh, be a major focus of his talk today. Uh, uh, Professor Swinton has many honors, including most recently being named a Fellow of the British Academy. Uh, he gave our seminar in fall of 2020, remote from Scotland, and we're delighted he's actually on campus with us at Duke today for a few days to be in conversations with students and others. Uh, and I uh, want to welcome you, John, uh, back to Duke and back to the TNC seminar to present uh, a talk entitled, Can a Pill Do What the Holy Spirit Could Not? Psychiatric Medication, Personhood, and Living Faithfully with Mental Health Challenges. Uh, welcome to you, John. Thank you, Warren. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. And uh, uh, I bring the greetings of Aberdeen University. So people are, speak very fondly of Duke and everything that goes on down here back home. Uh, and Warren mentioned that the last time I was here, I did it remotely. Uh, it feels like I'm doing it remotely now. It's a very strange thing. But anyway, what I wanted to do today is to think about um, psychiatric medication, but I want to think about it slightly differently. So I'm going to take you on a a little bit of a journey to help us to maybe reframe some ways of thinking about uh, medication. So in, in 2017, I was invited to present a paper at a conference in this very place on uh, uh, theology and psychiatric medication. And it was a fascinating interdisciplinary meeting where there were theologians there, there were pharmacists there, there were uh, biblical scholars. It was a really good, rich uh, uh, meeting. Uh, at one point in the presentation, I, I shared uh, the, the following abstract from a piece of qualitative research that I, I did a few years ago, exploring the experience of one young man whose name was Robert, um, who uh, had a particularly interesting relationship with uh, medication. So Robert um, lived with double depression, which means that uh, it's a relatively new diagnosis within which even when he's, he's well, he kind of struggles uh, to and functions at the way that many people would assume someone who was clinically depressed works out. And of course, when he goes down, he goes down into real depths. And he talks about his experiences having three levels. When he's at level one, there's no problem. He feels down, but at the same time, he's able to carry out his normal spiritual practices. So he can play, pray and read the Bible and, and do the things that people normally do to enhance their spirituality. When he goes into level two, it becomes more difficult because he, he becomes a little bit cognitively disoriented. His difficulty concentrating, but he says, I can still read the Psalms of Laments, which was very important for him uh, in terms of developing his spirituality within his experience. But when he gets into level three, that's when he has difficulties. And he says this, 
Uh, well, I say this to begin with, John Swinton. And what about when you are in the lower third? Is there anything that you can do there when you're really uh, at the bottom? And Robert says, drugs. And by that, he means psychiatric medication. Yeah, literally. When I'm there, it's I'm in a real scary, it's a scary place. When I'm uh, in my darkest places, there is no God, there's no help, or at least there has not been when I've been there. And I'm grateful, my, and my greatest fear when I'm in those places is that I might die without knowing God. Um, I say to him, medication then is, in some senses, has a, a spiritual role in, the, in getting you out of that place. And Robert says, absolutely. He says, um, only because, uh, well, how can I put this? I need a good metaphor for it. It's like, as a Christian, I'm supposed to climb a ladder and I can look down this long wall and there's a thousand other Christians climbing the same ladder. That's their spiritual effort, their journey, their direction. And I can't climb it. I can't get onto that first realm. What medication does, he says, it helps me to get onto the first realm of the spiritual wall. It's real. I just didn't get there the way everybody else gets there. Now, my intention in sharing this interaction was to indicate that psychiatric medication may be necessary, an important aspect of helping people to get back on their spiritual ladder in times of deep distress. In the same way as pain medication helps people to get in great pain to reconnect with God, self and others, psychiatric medication may be necessary to help people to get onto that first rung. However, the story was heard by some theologians in the room in a, in a quite a different way. They seemed rather concerned that Robert was taking medication in a way that uh, was uh, meant that his spiritual progress was somehow inauthentic. The implication was that Robert was somehow uh, taking a spiritual shortcut. So the concern seems to be that medication which enabled spiritual movement towards God was in danger of substituting chemicals for the hard work of spiritual formation. Indeed, one theologian in the room is quipped, if what you're suggesting is the case, then should we try to develop a Jesus pill? Now, people laughed, but I found that a strange thing to say. Uh, the idea of a Jesus pill makes precisely the same mistake as those neurological studies which attempt to explore where in the brain religion is to be found. Now, the philosopher Raymond Tallis amusingly puts the point in this way. He says, there's no Council of Trent spot on the brain. Religion inevitably involves the brain, but that does not mean that it's located solely within the brain. Religion is a dialogical enterprise, not a monological one. Religion is the product of myriad, a myriad of uh, human experiences, thoughts, interactions, and intellectual and physical relationships that occur over time in extracranial spaces. Now, you might be able to get a drug such as mescaline, which can enhance your general sense of religiosity, broadly defined. But you'll not find a drug which on its own puts you in touch with the specifics of Jesus. So Robert was not taking, talking about the appearance of a drug-induced vision of God that pops up every time he takes medication. He was talking about a lifelong relationship with Jesus, which is seriously inhibited by his double depression within which the interaction between his body chemistry and psychiatric medication enabled him to get past some bio biochemical blockages and begin the crucial task of holding on to his spirituality in the midst of very difficult storms. 
But whilst I didn't agree with some of the responses of my theologian colleagues and friends, uh, the challenge did make me think, what are the implications for theological anthropology? A psychoactive medication can, in a very short time, affect deep changes in mood, behavior, personality, faith, and spirituality. What might it mean for the types of experience often assumed to be the work of the soul to be profoundly susceptible to chemical manipulation, so much so that one's personality, who one is as a unique person, seems to be transformed without any necessary reference to God? As Michael Boyevin has put it, can a pill do the work of the Holy Spirit, or can a pill do what the Holy Spirit could not, even more polemically? So moving into the, uh, to explore these issues, um, it'll be helpful to spend a little time reflecting on the significance of what it means to offer a description of something or someone. Because the way in which we describe the world determines what we think we see. And what we think we see determines how we respond to what we think we see. So the, our descriptions have intentionality and practice built into them. It's important the language that you use when you describe something because it determines the way that you respond to that something that you describe. So with that in mind, let's ask this question. What does it mean to describe someone as embodied? Now, one of the basic assumptions that we might make when we begin to think about psychiatric medication is that it's a way of changing the body in order to lessen symptoms and bring about a degree of wellness. The assumption is that the act of giving and taking medication uh, should be uh, gauged in intrasystemic terms, that which goes on within your systems, within your body. For example, when depression is described in terms of a chemical imbalance, the apparently obvious uh, response is to introduce a chemical or a number of chemicals which can redress the balance. If we alter the individual's chemistry, we can get them to a state of well-being evaluated by the balance of their chemical makeup. Put into one side the fact that that theory is certainly under attack at the moment. The point is that it assumes that drugs work to change individual bodies at a chemical level. Now, this kind of intrasystemic view of the body's relationship with psychiatric medication lies behind some of the less helpful Christian responses to mental health challenges. You shouldn't have to take medication for something God can do. You need to be have more faith. You can't be a Christian because Christians don't get depressed. You need to pray harder, etc., etc., etc. The assumption is that drugs are bad because they do things to individual bodies that God should be doing. Now, all of this sits quite comfortably with our current cultural assumptions that psychological distress is best understood in terms of mental illness. In the same way as we have physical illness, we have mental illness. The causes of such illness are biological, and we can track them down and mend them in the same ways you might track down and mend diabetes or cancer. The problem, of course, is that many mental health challenges are not caused by malfunctioning chemistry or broken neurology. They're often caused by war, abuse, poverty, famine, poor parenting, a lack of relationships, and a variety of other complex social human experiences. If it was simply a matter of having more faith, 
it would probably be easier, but that would probably be easier than trying to deal with the issues and all of the complexity. So when we reduce mental health challenges to illnesses that can be tracked down to the boundaries of single bodies, we risk missing crucial dimensions of what's actually going on. Now, medication is an important aspect of mental health care. I emphasize that, and I'm in no sense saying medication is a bad thing. The danger, however, is that medication becomes a way of helping people to adjust to unjust social situations and structures. If a primary cause of depression is loneliness and isolation, and the primary response to depression is medication, then we do have a problem. So let's think about how we might describe the body slightly differently. It's statingly obvious to note that psychiatric drugs are designed to impact upon the body. But which aspect of our bodies is intended to have an, is it intended to have an impact upon? One of the problems with discussions around the physical and spiritual impact of medication is that they tend to be deeply materialistic in terms of what they think the body is. Now, phenomenologists ask us to think slightly different about our body. Within phenomenology, that philosophical perspective that looks to try to explore lived experience, we find something different. Here we find a distinction between the material body, this physical thing that uh, stands before you just now, and the lived body. So the material body and all of its physicality is your physical body, your heart, your lungs, all of the things go in there. Your lived body occurs when this material body enters into social relationships, when you move around the world, when you move around and experience things, if you just happiness, sadness, all of these things. The lived body is that space where that happens. So the material body grounds us in the world and enables the possibility of uh, awareness, identity, selfhood, and meaningful life. The material body works that out and lives that out. Now, the material body is also a locus for our spiritual life and our connectedness with God and others. In the Genesis accounts of creation, uh, uh, God creates Adam out of the just. Genesis 2, 7. God blows God's ruach into Adam, and he becomes a person. Human beings are made from dust and return to dust. As Augustine puts it in the city of God, human beings are terra animata, animated dust. There is no indication here of a separate dimension that we might call the soul. Body, mind, and soul is inextricably interconnected. What happens in one realm impacts upon all realms. We are our bodies and we, as we are our souls. It's also worth noting that this physical material body was incomplete without a partner. It's not good that human beings should be alone, Genesis 2.18. We are embodied and relational right from the start. The material body is both soulful and relational. Nevertheless, when it comes to conversations around psychopharmacology, this soulful dimension of the body is rarely discussed. Instead, we focus on the material dimensions of the body as they relate to the impact of medication. So as this paper moves on, we will try to reclaim something of this created soulfulness of the body. 
Now, alongside of the material body, but not apart from it, is the lived body, as I was explaining it. The idea of the lived body relates to the way that the material body moves through the world. The lived body occurs or, or emerges as we move into our relations, as we move into society. And it's here that we discover our true identity, our place in the world. The meaning and purpose of our lives and the kinds of things that enhance or detract from our lived, lived goals are revealed in our lived bodies. So to date, a good deal of attention, theological and otherwise, has been focused on issues around medication and the material body. Much less attention has been given to the relationship between medication and the lived body. So in what follows, I'll show that paying attention to the lived body, again, not apart from the material body, uh, we can discover some vital insights that have important theological and practical implications. So in a fascinating study published back in 1995 um, uh, by two psychologists, Peter Barham and Robert Hayward, uh, in a book called Relocating Madness, uh, they did a fascinating piece of qualitative research following the lives of uh, 40 people who lived with schizophrenia as they left the uh, institution and found a place within uh, society. So uh, what the, the documents in some detail, how they felt about the circumstances, what they went through, the way they framed things. At one point in the, the narrative, Barham and Hayward explore the issue of uh, was described as non-compliance to psychopharmaceutical regimes. So it's a known phenomenon that when some people with mental health challenges move into the community, they sometimes stop taking their medication. This is described as non-compliance. The reason for this non-compliance is often put down to the vicious cycle wherein people leave hospital, stop taking medication, leading to a worsening of their condition, which often leads to re-hospitalization. When they stop taking medications, they lose insight, uh, which leads to non-compliance, or so the theory goes. So it's assumed that the problem lies in the biological nature of the person's mental illness. The description of non-compliance makes sense in terms of one's assumption about the material body and what one might presume that medication is doing to and for the individual, or not doing to and for the individual. However, if we look at the situation from the perspective of the lived body, something very interesting emerges. As Barham and Hayward listened to the stories of the people they were working alongside, a different description came to the fore. It was certainly the case that people sometimes stopped taking their medication when they left hospital. However, their motivations for doing so were not as obvious as oftentimes assumed. Ceasing taking medication was in fact a rite of passage that led to them perceiving themselves as persons rather than mental patients, to use Barman Hero's words. Not taking medication was, in fact, a reaffirmation, a reaffirmation of their personhood. Persons in the community don't take medication. Only, in inverted commas, mental patients take medication. I am no longer a patient, so I won't take medication. So not taking medication had become a gateway into citizenship and personhood. So rather than it being non-compliance is simply a product of misfiring biology, 
It's actually a deeply spiritual and personal social experience that is going on in the midst of this. And if we don't listen to it carefully, we miss the point. So the point here is not that medication is bad and people should stop taking it. I emphasize that medication properly prescribed and administered can be a positive and indeed, as we should see, perhaps a spiritual thing. The point here is that we have a group of people whose personhood is threatened by the thought of living lives that are stigmatized and isolated, and within which usual sources for reinforcing personhood, such as friendship, community, work, are not available. So the act of stopping taking medication functions here as a means of taking control and a statement of what they consider to be important in terms of maintaining their personhood. At one level, the action of taking medication is a technical pharmaceutical uh, endeavor aimed at making changes to the material body. At another level, it's a deeply meaningful action that has a significant impact on a person's identity and self-worth, quite apart from the chemical changes it may or may not induce. So taking medication is a deeply meaningful action that impacts upon people's identity, their personhood, well beyond the parameters of what the drug may be doing in chemical terms to the material body. So prescribing medication without recognizing this lived dimension risks engaging in actions which profoundly impact a person's personhood, sometimes profoundly negatively. So with these thoughts in mind, let's think about what a theological description of the body might look like. So we looked at the two dimensions of the body, the material body and the lived body. And that there's a third dimension, uh, which is the theological body, if you like. And it's no less crucial. So we, be, we have begun something of, a, of, the, of that conversation already with our reflections on the Genesis account of creation. Now we need to turn to the New Testament uh, and look at how Paul conceptualizes the body. Paul's theology of the body has important implications for our developing understanding of the spiritual dimensions of psychopharmacological intervention. In her important and very interesting paper, Bodies, Agency and the Relational Self, a Pauline, Pauline account to the, uh, approach to the goals and use of psychiatric drugs, uh, the New Testament scholar Susan Eastman discusses the implication of Paul's theology of the body for the use of psychopharmacology. For Paul, Eastman argues, participation is central to understanding the body. She says this. She says, Paul views the body as a mode of participation in larger relational matrices in both vulnerable and vital ways. He's, he thus sees the, the self uh, as constituted relationally rather than as fundamentally isolated and self-determining. Such an understanding of personhood yields an account of human agency as co-constituted and freedom as interpersonally mediated and sustained. So bodies are never to be understood on their own. They're always bodies in relationship. Counter to the idea that we are discrete individuals who reside within our own bodies, quite apart from the bodies of others, Paul informs us that we are, what, uh, we are who we are and we do what we do as we participate with others in outward spirals of relationality. The body is not an enclosed unit, 
but rather a relational entity that constantly seeks to bridge the gap between itself and the bodies of others. As Eastman puts it this way, she says, it's uh, as if physical bodies were bridges rather than barriers. And I really like that. As if, as if physical bodies were bridges rather than barriers, making human creatures into participatory beings, not autonomous, not isolated, but connected to larger bodies. The self emerges from participation in ever-expanding relational matrices. It is as we participate in relationships with others that we discover ourselves in this understanding. We are both independent and dependent. Again, to quote Eastman, she says this, we are interdependent selves, not fully absorbed into a communal identity, but also never fully self-reliant and self-contained. From a Pauline perspective on human freedom, agency, and well-being, therefore, the goal is always life-giving connection, not discrete, self-directed, and self-sufficient individualism, Indeed, from Paul's perspective, the claim to be completely self-sufficient, freestanding, isolated persons would be a lethal delusion. So embodiment is fundamental to personhood now and also in the life to come, because Paul is very clear that we'll be embodied creatures in the afterlife as well as now. So there can be no separation between our personhood and our physical embodied existence. Our selfhood is grounded and sustained uh, by relational bonds. And that obviously makes us profoundly vulnerable. For Paul, bodies are intended to exist in the mode of belonging. We belong to others and ultimately to God. Belonging is the mode uh, that means that human beings are inevitably and necessarily profoundly vulnerable. The social matrix that persons are involved with can be healthy and healing, but it can also be deeply destructive. The ways in which we configure our relationships will, will determine whether we live healthily or destructively. So the possibility of mental health challenges emerges from this complex relational context. And one final quote from uh, uh, Eastman will help to make that point. She says this, when the relational matrix to which individuals belong is life-giving and communicates grace, such belonging does not negate individuality. In fact, it creates it, as Paul's words, uh, as in Paul's words, individually members of the body of Christ suggests. Paul does not convey a competitive account of relationship between divine and human agents in which the, the more God acts, the less humans act. To the contrary, God's actions uh, God, sorry, God's action strengthens and amplifies human action. The iteration of such non-competitive agencies in human interaction is a kind of allied agency. Our capacities to know, decide, and act in effective ways are so co-constituted in relationship with God and other people. So that relationality runs right across a relationship with human beings, a relationship with God. So this view of the, the body moves away from uh, materialism and dualism. The material dimension of the body is important, but so also is the lived body as it reaches out and relates to the world. Here we discover the fullness of persons. Paul's thinking also moves us away from any kind of dualistic thinking 
there's no room for a disembodied understanding of, of the mind uh, or the self. To be a mind without a body would be, in Paul's language, to be naked and unclothed. What we do with our bodies and what we do with our mind are not separate things. They are deeply interlinked with what occurs in one impacting on others and vice versa. So it's therefore not surprising that the taking of a drug changes the material body in such a way as to change a person's mind. This in itself is not problematic as long as we bear in mind the telos or theological intention of, of, of the use of the drug. And this is perhaps the key point. What is the moral goal of pharmacology? In the light of this relational way of thinking about human beings and the human body, what is the moral goal of psychopharmacology? So a reflection on Pauline perspectives and personhood in the body have shown the centrality of the body as the ground of our personhood and the ways in which the body is foundationally relational and participatory. With that in mind, it seems clear that the proper goal of psychopharmacology is not simply to deal with symptoms, but also to remove any barriers that prevent the kinds of relationships and human connection that hold us in our uh, personhood. So medications intended to enhance our relationality. To return to the example of Robert, which opened this paper, the antidepressant medication that he took when he was in the level three of his depression functioned to reconnect him under circumstances where he was completely disconnected from self, others, and God. Rather than being a way of avoiding the work of spiritual development, medication in this case provided a gateway into the healing of his, his relational disconnection and a movement towards him living into the kind of personhood that Paul indicates is God's intention for all human beings. In this case, the administration of medication became a spiritual act that was part of a relational process which formed the basis of faithful prescribing. Rather than being simply a technical, biologically oriented action, the giving of medication can be seen as a relational process that takes seriously the material and the lived body and seeks to help to move people towards the kind of identity, agency and relationship that God desires. So medication faithfully administered, and that's the key, allows the development of life-giving connection rather than self-directed, self-sufficient individualism. The motivation for giving medication as well as the motivation for receiving it should therefore have a particular moral goal. So coming towards the end of what I want to say to you, there's a few points. If it's the case that minds are dialogical rather than monological, it's clear that looking at and responding to an individual at a purely intrasystemic level is inadequate. The question asked by prescribers cannot simply be, does this medication work? If the definition of what work means is not clear, does work mean controlling symptoms? Does work mean making life easier for the individual? Does work mean making life easier for families? Does work mean making life easier for society? What do we mean when we say that a, a drug works? Or does what drug or does work mean helping the individual to negotiate their relational connectedness in ways that bring about life in all of its fullness? Whilst all of these aspects of work may be important, 
the latter seems to be the overarching priority with the proviso that gives that with the proviso that gives the other forms of work their tell us and go. So there are four questions that a prescriber might want to bear in mind in the light of the argument of this paper. Question number one, in what sense does this medication facilitate a person's movement back into relationship with God, self and others? Question number two, for whose benefit is any of this medication being administered? Question number three, what will the person gain by the administration of this medication? And question number four, which is very important, what will a person lose if this medication is administered? Questions such as these help us to remember the livid body, take seriously the material body, and use our skill as prescribers to enable the maintenance and development of the theological personhood of individuals and communities. So psychiatric drugs clearly have a role to play in dealing with some of the difficulties encountered by people living with mental health challenges. We must, however, be careful. A good deal of the challenge that people experience in, that people experience in relation to their mental health relates to external factors such as poverty, inequality, war, and so forth. Medication can certainly help with people struggling in such situations. However, the danger is that by turning to medication to solve social problems, we end up medicating a response to societal injustice. When we discover that scientists are very close to discovering a drug that can overcome loneliness, well, we know there's a problem. If it's our communities and our ways of life that are pathogenic, then we might want to be very careful not to reduce the problem of our nation to within the bodies of certain individuals who carry the weight of our shared inadequacies. So in conclusion, we can now return to the issue that forms the title of this paper. Can a pill do what the Holy Spirit could not? It's certainly fair to raise the concern that psychiatric drugs uh, could be used as a shortcut to enable people to feel good without the kind of faith and belief that is character forming. If feeling good is the desired outcome of religion, then yes, perhaps medication can in, set, in this sense take the place of the spirit. Uh, religion can be illusory and escapist and certainly for certain forms of medication could play into that. If you think religion is only intended to make people happy and to escape from their troubles, then medication can replace religion. If you think that religion uh, revolves around church going and thoughtlessly adhering to denominational norms, then yes, drugs can replace religion and the work of the spirit. However, if you think that religion relates to involvement in a historically embedded spirit-filled community that focuses on the development and sustaining of meaningful relationship with God, self and others, with a view to creating a people who reveals something of God's love, then no, psychiatric drugs can't do that. If religion is vital for the understanding, development and sustenance of our relational personhood, as I have argued, then no, drugs can't do that. Yes, we might find a drug that helps us overcome loneliness, but what kind of a world will it be when our when our Deep, innate, God-given desire for relationality and connection with God, self, and others is reduced to the size of a pill. Perhaps rather than looking at simply psychopharmacology, we may ask the question of 
uh, the nature of research and uh, why, what the desire of the research might be in terms of the moral goals and hopes for the future of human beings. So thank you for, uh, for listening. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Uh, we, we have a few questions coming in and also just some uh, general notes of appreciation for you. So, uh, so I know people have really appreciated your, your, uh, your talk. Um, while people gather their questions, and I do have a few to pose to you, one participant asked that you repeat those four questions that you recommended for prescribers. Could you do that? And then, and then we I have some questions for you. Yeah. Uh, okay, question number one. In what sense does this medication facilitate a person's movement back into relationship with God, self, and others? Question number two, for whose benefit is, it, is, is this medication, sorry, for whose benefit, if any, is this medication administered? For whose, let me read that again. For whose benefit is this medication administered? Uh, number three, what will the person gain by the administration of this medication? Question number four, what will a person lose if this medication is administered? Thank you very much, that's great, thank you. Uh, so our first question is, uh, in your judgment, is the greater risk for most uh, forgoing medication that can help them in their connection to God, self and others, or opting for medications in a way that hinders one's, albeit painful and difficult, journey of connecting to God, self, and others? I think there, there are times when people simply have no option, that it's not, it's not possible in their own strength to get to that space where you can begin to, to reconnect with God. And so I think when you're in that space, you need help. In the same way as, as if you're in that space where you're in deep physical pain, you need pain relief before you can really begin to, to get your life together and reconnect with yourself and with God and with other people. So my, my, my general sense would be uh, uh, it shouldn't be perceived as an easy option, but you need to be able to discern the, the times when uh, somebody simply is, is incapable of reaching out without the help of, of some kind of chemical intervention. Thank you. Um, we have more questions coming in, but I wanna, I wanna press you on a couple of specific contexts that uh, are one of which is faced very commonly by prescribers, at least in the United States, and another of which is very much on the horizon everywhere, I think. Um, but I'll engage them differently. Um, so how would this distinction that you've made between the the material body, the lived body, the theological body apply in the particular context where uh, there was a recent headline that um, the supply chain of Adderall, which is a common stimulant used for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in both uh, children, but also now increasingly in adults is actually, um, a lot of pharmacies are having supply shortages because of increasing demand in the United States. And so uh, psychiatrists and primary care practitioners and other uh, prescribing clinicians are are uh, facing a lot more requests, especially by adults, for stimulants um, and for uh, evaluations for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder than was the case several years ago. And this seems to have escalated during the pandemic. Um, on one hand, uh, ADHD is a condition that is treated and in the more recent uh, updated criteria of the DSM, uh, became easier to diagnose in adults. Um, 
On the other hand, a lot of people have uh, suggested that what this is is in part a phenomenon where people are feeling increasingly uh, distracted and uh, our attention is uh, and stressed and our attention is captured and uh, in by a lot of different uh, social forces, including social media and just the general pace of everyday life. Um, so if someone were to come to a practitioner and were to, and were to be somebody who maybe historically didn't have a diagnosis of ADHD, but in mid-adulthood is having a lot of trouble just um, um, organizing experience, uh, keeping up with experience, concentrating on tasks, feeling alert during the day. Um, how, would, how would this system apply in that context? Well, I think there's two aspects of, I, would th I would want to think about that. But first of all, the temptation, the, the temptation in that situation. Uh, well, as you, you you've, you've articulated really well that certain conditions come and go in the eye of the public, and so something like back home we have a similar situation with dyslexia. So there's some interesting studies that indicate that. Uh, dyslexia is a diagnosis that middle-class families really want to, to have uh, 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 placed upon their children if they're not doing well, because it means they're not just not doing well, and dyslexia destigmatizes the fact that they're not doing well. So there's that social push to have that particular diagnosis. Um, when, and it's partly to do with the, the internet, so when a diagnosis like ADHD becomes public knowledge, and when it becomes a, a mode of explanation, which a lay person picks up, then they will go to your doctor already primed with what they think is wrong with them. The, the, the thing the doctor then has to do is discern, do I go with the pressure from the individual who makes claim, for example, that it's their right to, to have this particular diagnosis and then, then from there the right to have the appropriate medication, or do I explore it from a different perspective? And so my sense would be in that situation, uh, the certain the kind of questions we're talking about there, you would want to uh, you would want to explore their experience more fully to, to 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 begin to explore whether or not what the relational dynamics of that look like, whether there's a spiritual dynamic in the midst of that, and whether or not they're seeking this particular diagnosis is has um, a deeper meaning than it may just. Uh, 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 it may just uh, initially appear to be. So I would, I'm not a clinician, so I, I, I can step back from that. But I think I would want to explore all of these dynamics, where where the pressure comes from, how the person understands that, why they want that, and what the alternatives are. And then from there, I begin to think about uh, what that means at a biochemical level and whether or not it's possible to test, to explore uh, precisely whether that diagnostic is, diagnosis is appropriate. So I'd want to have that the alternative way to exploring uh, from a slightly different perspective. Okay, thank you, thanks. Our next question, uh, this participant says, as an African-American who has been a member of diverse church communities, but primarily African-American, mental health care is not heartily embraced, whether it's counseling or medication. The idea is indeed that there's nothing that meds or counseling can do that God cannot do. What advice do you have to help break the resistance and remove the stigma for this community? Well, I um, the way I think about that is that, well, two, two things I would say. One, uh, I suspect that within that community, like many other communities that think that way, 
that wouldn't necessarily be the case for physical illness. I mean, I don't know the community, so I don't know. So if somebody breaks their leg, it'd be unlikely that somebody, the, just, the, the church gathers around and just prays. So that they, would, they would call medical, medical help and then do other things. Like. And so there is a, a dualism built into some kinds of theology that, that indicates that what goes on in your mind is problematic and what goes on in your body just gets fixed in, in the same way as you would fix anything else. And it's that dualism, I think, is, is tricky because it, it comes from a cultural uh, uh, bias towards intellect and reason as being central to what we are as human beings. I mean, you get the same difficulty with people with dementia, you get the same difficulty with people with intellectual disabilities, but when you lose a cultural uh, 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 good, a social good, or a good that culture really does value, and, and also assumes it's, it's really central to what you are as a human being and what you are as a worshiping human being, because you need words, you need to be able to, to, to know who God is in that way. Uh, if you have anything wrong with your mind, then it pushes not only into your cognitive disablement, but to your very humanity. So faith and, and your, your, what it means to be a human being are all tied up in that the ways that we think and the, the ways that we use our intellect. Um, so I think you've got these two, di two dimensions that you're, you're of dualism, uh, and an emphasis on uh, uh, or a tying together of humanness and, and, and intellect. And I think uh, that we, when we put a theological gloss on that, we have a problem. So the way I would look at it is, first of all, that position, that passage from uh, Genesis indicates that we are whole beings, that God blows his, his spirit into us uh, and that we become whole persons. There's no indication there that we, we become brains. Right? So there's no indication that you have a separation there. So that dualism, I think, is, is deeply challenged in the midst of that. Secondly, and importantly, uh, I think it's pretty clear from our tradition that uh, having a mental health problem is not necessarily something that is demonic or a lack of faith or a lack of praying. If to, to make, let me give you two quick examples. Um Isaiah talks quite clearly about God as a God who hates, right? So on the one hand, we think God's here with us all the time. And then Isaiah says, no, God sometimes hates. You read through the Psalms of Lament, and the Psalmist is constantly saying, where are you, God? Why has this happened? Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my only companion, right? Uh, and, and, and even, you know, on the cross, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So to have something as an, a concrete example, like depression, where you feel that you're disconnected from God, it's in our tradition. It's part of our spirituality. The psalmist experiences, psalmist didn't have a lack of faith. Darkness is my only companion is not a lack of faith. It's a lack of connection. Jesus didn't have a lack of faith. It's a lack of connection. So you can see that that experience of even deep darkness that you experience in the, in the context of depression is uh, there within the tradition. So my sense would be it's difficult to change cultures, but I think if we took scripture more seriously around these issues and looked at it more holistically and looked at it in the light of the experience of the whole body of Christ, then some of these questions, at least in principle, sh shouldn't be there and the, are formulated in the way that they are. Thank you. Next question is, um, what are your thoughts on the growing movement for social prescribing for arts experiences, uh, which is being used and promoted in the UK and now in some parts of the US, including Massachusetts? Uh, this, this participant says agency and relationships are essentially included in community engagement programming and can be profoundly transformative. Yeah, yeah, I agree about with that. 
Yeah, I do agree with that. So um, I've seen that a lot in, my, in the work I've done in, in dementia. But one uh, uh, model that might be helpful just to respond to that is in Scotland, we have a system called community chaplaincy listening. Uh, and it's a project that was set up, we managed it years ago, that uh, was set up and um, to put a, cha- a listener, initially a chaplaincy, then any kind of listener, in all family practitioners ac- across the country. So every time you go to a doctor, you have the option of being uh, um, uh, referred to a listener. And the listener uh, simply listens, right? Uh, and the, the basic rationale for that was that people were coming to the, the, the doctor with vague aches and pains, which they, uh, for, they couldn't really tie in what it was it was. And so the, the, the general practitioner refers to the listener, and the listener just listens. So somebody sits there for 45 minutes and talks about their issue, and they just listen. Uh, and then at the end of that time, uh, the listener does, engages in social prescription. So, uh, so they tell you, well, maybe you could go here, maybe you could do this, maybe this club here now. And it's been really, really successful, partly because people like to just hear the sound of their own voice. When your story is articulated, it sounds better because you can see in fr- or you can hear in front of you what, what your story looks like. And partly because it's a great resource. If you're lonely, if you're lost, and you have somebody there prescribing social spaces to go to and spiritual spaces to go to, it's deeply healing. So I'm a I'm a great fan of social prescribing because I think it's I think it's effective. That's really interesting. Thank you. Thanks. Our next uh, question. Our next participant uh, says, and this gets to one thing I wanted to ask you about. I think it's a really interesting question. You spoke of medication as help getting started on the spiritual ladder. Uh, could you comment on the increasingly fashionable interest in recreational or therapeutic hallucinogens? Uh, or psychedelics to jumpstart spirituality. Uh, this participant says, I know young people of no particular faith, often raised Christian, but now rejecting the faith because of its scandals, who found a new, a new spirituality and connection with nature through hallucinogens. Is there a way in which this can be a legitimate way of overcoming barriers to a nascent spiritual life uh, or sense uh, that is perhaps in the context of past spiritual trauma? I, I don't know enough to know enough about that, but I would want to I would want to separate the two, right? So psychopharmacology isn't intended to enhance your spirituality. It's simply intended to, to, to help you to deal with very difficult symptoms that are preventing you from relating to yourself and God and others, uh, uh, which is slightly different from uh, feeling disenfranchised and needing a, to find a way to kickstart your spirituality. Uh, that may uh, may well be be valid and genuine. I mean, I don't know enough about it to to be able to comment sensibly, but I would want to, to notice the two things are not the same thing. We're not talking about spiritual enhancement through psychopharmacology. Uh, we're talking about simply uh, uh, enabling and facilitating that person's mental health in such a way that they can begin to reconnect. Uh, the other side of things for youngsters taking uh, hallucinogenic drugs, um, I don't know. Um, but I'm sure that, but I, I, it strikes me as more enhancement rather than, uh, if you like, uh, spiritual therapy. If that's the way to put it. Yeah, this is this is I think going to be a, a increasing question. I think as um, psychedelic assisted psychotherapies become more and more mainstream. Yeah. Uh, so, so definitely something. I I think the the question is one that I think um, is is 
good for all of us to continue to think it's a good about. Good question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, next question of uh, is is it fair to say, in your view of theological anthropology, that when we take pharmaceuticals, we're changing not only our biology but our soul? Uh, I think I, I, I think that the um, to go back to that understanding of a human being as, as, as interconnected that we see in, in Genesis, I think that uh, I wouldn't separate your biology from your soul in that sense. And so I, I think we are ensouled beings rather than separate and say that this chemical impacts on this part of the, the soul. So in that sense, I think it, it does impact upon your soulfulness, the way that you engage with the world through your, your body. Um, but I guess the key would be how you conceptualize and understand the soul. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's for another conversation. So if you understand the soul as something that's apart from the body, that is kind of immutable or at least uh, unreachable to chemical biochemical intervention, then that'd be something different, a uh, slightly different conversation. So my sense is if we're in soul bodies, then to some extent it, it impacts upon our, our soulfulness in that way. Um, but the fact that that happens and, and you know that I often think you know when Jesus Jesus healing miracles are basically biological and I mean that he, he not saying he does the same thing as a psychopharmacological drug but he does bring about chemical changes in and through his miraculous power so the fact that we're talking about uh, 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 drugs doing something in the process of healing uh, does have a precedent even if that precedent is radically different from what we're talking about. Thank you. I think this is going to be our last question. Uh, this, this participant says, as an educator and clinician in clinical mental health counseling, I'm aware of both the push and nudge toward and away from, uh, including theological dimensions within the professional counseling paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, what recommendations would you have for counseling professionals regarding ways to include theological perspectives in process, specifically what language, like which specific words would you use? And this participant also says, express our gratitude to Dr. Swinton for this talk. No, that's kind of it. Uh, well, in the UK, the way that, the, the, actually everywhere to some extent, the way that people have dealt with that is by shifting the language from theology to spirituality. And so you, you, you talk to language spirituality, which is basically a, a broad understanding of theology, of, of meaning, purpose, value, hope, which is kind of um, bland and doesn't offend anybody. So the way you get the basic principles that you might want in terms of relationships and some of the things we've been talking about, they do that by shifting the language to spirituality. My sense is that that's not very, it's not very comfortable because very often religion and theology are excluded from that conversation. In relation to how you, you incorporate it into practice, I think there's, you, the, the key, the, I think it's important that you're not enforcing your theological views on somebody that's in a, a vulnerable position in terms of the power dynamics limb. But when people bring up the, the issue of spirituality and bring up issues relating to theology, I think that's the space where we, we talk about it overtly when it's, it's something that's it's, it's, um, clearly coming from the individual. So the... Um, the uh, Royal Society of uh, General Practici Practitioners in the United Kingdom have a basic ethical rule that it's fine to speak about theological and religious things as long as it is initiated by the uh, the client or the patient. 
And I think that's not that's, that's a sensible way to do it. So it underpins your practice because the theoretical framework and your reflexivity, the way you're understanding yourself as a therapist is always informed by that. But the overt conversation uh, is, comes to fruition really when the patient or the person or the client initiates that conversation. And I think then that's a safe place for everybody to have that kind of conversation. Great. John, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, thanks for these yeah. insights and words that you shared for the uh, for your responses to the questions. Uh, we're, we're grateful for you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.